for quite some time um, for the next three weeks uh, we are participating in my Volker Mord project meaning genocide in German and we'll be discussing art from and concerning the Holocaust I'm being completely unironic about this it's not a joke to me I'm going to be looking at this stuff really seriously and um, I'm, I'm happy that people are here with me to go through this. I think it's uh, something that has to be addressed in the creation of my new philosophical world. So today we'll be discussing the diary of Anne Frank and Luca Guadagnino's 2018 remake of Suspiria. And I'm joined by a fabulous guest who is in Egypt at this very moment. The first time I'm so popular has been recorded in from Africa. Who are you? Um, I'm Masha. Uh, I am a dancer and general perfume Twitter orbiter. <laughs> That's what Wonderful. <laughs> Welcome, Masha. What are you doing? Um, I'm drinking really strong Egyptian tea that tastes like dirt, but also nostalgia. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> Beautiful. And why do you follow me? Um, just generally, um, I was like about 16 years old, 17 years old uh, in the midst of the sort of COVID crisis um, in the uh, lovely city, well, not so lovely city of Melbourne and which experienced the worst of the uh, COVID-19 regulations. And I had just emerged out of my uh, kind of idealist communist teenage phase, which I think a lot of people in my generation go through. Um, however, I was quite disenchanted um, I found myself subconsciously disenchanted by it and one day stumbled upon a Red Scare episode riffing on Greta Thunberg and somehow it voiced all of my issues, all of my problems, and it seemed so apparent. Um, and in those last kind of two years of that lockdown, I kept myself sane by listening to Red Scare um, and then eventually stumbled upon a Perfume Twitter along with Perfume Nationalism, Perfume Nationalist. And um, he kind of, at the same time, voiced a lot of the things that I was really concerned about. Uh, most, most importantly, my undying love for perfume, which is something that I've had since I was a little girl, and a constant quest for like really messed up cinema and messed up art, which I like felt was completely unrepresented in common media. And then I kind of just stumbled upon you on Twitter at some point and followed you because I thought you were funny. And I only think I started listening to you like much later. Um, uh, I think you released a thing about Dramageddon, 
um, with oh, Sasha yeah. Armada. And that was the first <laughs> Zach Langley Chi episode that I ever listened to, and I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And ever since, yeah, that's history. So, oh, that's a great episode to start with. I'm happy to hear that. But yeah. <clears throat> I remember specifically meeting you on a Twitter space and uh, finding out that you are a dancer in training uh, yeah. about your dramatic world-trotting relocations that ended up in Australia. And I found you instantly fascinating. And uh, I remember I invited you to come on my show like last year. And you said, you know, I'm... I'm only 19. I can't possibly. I don't have anything to say. But um, <laughs> I'm really, really happy to have you joining me for this because um, I think you're riveting. And this is something very important to me that I've been itching to get out of my system for a long time. So I'm glad we're taking this journey together. I'm glad. I'm so I'm so honored. I'm so honored to be recognized. <laughs> I feel like a little... Uh... Um, like a little pick me bitch, honestly. <laughs> like, because everyone, everyone's kind of got all these huge projects and they're pretty well known. But I just, I feel like I've just been like observing it from this distance. It's really crazy to actually be involved in it. Yeah, that's no. I think that you know, you devoting uh, your time to the studies of dance is absolutely a big project and something you know worth <laughs> considering like yeah. everyone has to pursue something artistic in one way or another um, I agree and you know even if it is harder to translate to the internet I'm glad that you're spending your life doing something like that Thanks. but yeah um I just I don't know what to say Zach <laughs> I'm really nervous <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's going to get a lot harder from here because this is probably the most serious um, subject matter yes. I've ever touched on in my entire show's history. And for the most part, I'm So Popular is a pretty lighthearted project, but I've wanted to discuss the Holocaust and World War II and its shadow over my life for a very long time. Um, long Long-term listeners of the show will know that my grandfather was in the SS in Germany, and I have distinct memories of visiting concentration camps with him when I went to Germany, and ever since I was very young, I have been rendered extremely emotional by anything depicting the Holocaust, and I really wanted to confront that feeling and evoke the horror of World War II um, in, in somewhere in my redevelopment of the world. So I, before we get into Anne Frank, I, I wanted to ask you, what is your relationship with the Holocaust like? Because everyone has some relation in one way or another. It's such a crux in history and such a pivotal point that no human on this earth can go without at least some tangential memory or relation to World War II and the horrors of it. So what's your relationship like to the Holocaust? Well, I didn't know about the Holocaust specifically until quite late in my life. I think I was about 11 because I grew up mm -hmm. in Egypt and there it wasn't really spoken about. Um, however, like World War II was a big part of my upbringing because because of my Russian family. And um, my great-grandfather died um, when the Germans invaded. And, like, that war completely shaped, I think, Russian culture and, like, 
the relationship that we have to like I think just death in general because so many people died so many men died specifically um and so I grew up my whole life like my great-grandma herself I, I, I knew her when I was a child and she uh, would always tell me stories of how life was during World War II in Russia, which was really difficult, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it was so laced with tragedy. And I think just like stories about World War II was actually how I knew about mortality in a sense. Like I, I, I never felt like I had a moment where I found out about death. It's just that I always knew about it and I always knew about it because I've always been like World War II was always a subject that was talked about with me. And um, I remember when I moved to Australia, we were doing history. And that's when I started, when we started learning about the Holocaust. And it was, I think it was the most horrific thing I'd ever heard. And it was like, I just remember like it, it, it like the entire kind of class that I was in was very, very touched by it. Like I'd never seen a group of people in general, let alone children, so affected by simply like a historical fact. Um, mm -hmm. But because we had this like really intense French history teacher who would show us these like very kind of gruesome documentaries about the Holocaust and talk about all of the sort of atrocities that got, went on in the uh, concentration camps and like, I remember one time there was this really distinct moment where he turned to this girl, Margot, who had really beautiful, long, silky hair, and he said, and he said, you know, they would kill you and make hair out of your lampshade. Uh, uh, make, make a lampshade out of your hair. So he said, they said, they would kill you and make a lampshade out of your hair. And then, like, he'd show us pictures of those said lampshades. And I remember her being absolutely horrified and breaking into tears. I mean, it was kind of this, like, uh, I think it was brought to us in a very sensationalist, um, dramatic French way. But at the same time, mm. it was like very deeply like already like World War II, something which to me carried so much tragedy and death. Like suddenly it's like a new chapter of it opened, which carried even more tragedy and even more death to it. Um, well, I think you're exactly right about sort of the um, universally accepted sensationalism of it. Mm. And especially as we've plummeted further and further into like post-COVID universe, I feel like the world has become very abstracted from true terror. The mm. idea of something so monstrous and hellish occurring in our own vaguely recent history mm. is so preposterous to people after being completely sheltered and coddled by the world of covid as well as liberal politics everything else like people are so enshrined in their realm of safety that the holocaust has become sort of the only realm in which the true unbridled terrifying human nature that exists within all of us becomes evident at all and yeah. i had a very similar experience even in america where children are very ironic and constantly uh, like jovially making like jokes about things i remember several moments um reading about the Holocaust in my English classes that 
uh, these like eighth graders would become stunned and petrified in silence after understanding these atrocities. Yeah. And I think it's important that these atrocities and this terror is really fully fleshed and given life and understanding because getting closer to it brings us closer to understanding human nature. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's kind of like I think when you I think I think like sort of the way children in the West are raised is in a very sheltered way, which allows for that amount of like irony and cynicism to be like cultivated from such a young age as well. And I think for a lot of people, like a history class where you learn about the Holocaust is the first time that they hear about genuine human atrocity, you know, mm-hmm. or like, and I think it's like, in some cases, I think for some people, it's a bit of like almost a spiritual moment. It's like they realize that like us humans are capable of the most like atrocious evil thing um and i think it's something that a lot of a lot of people i mean obviously as a child uh you can't fathom in in a certain sense like people find it very difficult to understand um in this like when especially when raised so sheltered from tragedy and from pain and death that us humans are capable of real cruelty and real evil and that this evil resides practically in every single one of us to a certain extent um and that you know it's it's kind of your job your own responsibility to not act on it and that's what's really going to gauge how you know anything happens i think that's how i uh kind of found my like that's that was the conclusion that i drew when i from like finding out about the Holocaust. Although, yeah, it was it was quite baffling to witness the reactions of people, like to be so stunned by so much atrocities. Cause when you're a child who grows up with stories of war and stories of death, um, like they're kind of, it's, 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 it's less of a shock, as much of a shock to the system as it was, but so many people that I knew were deeply, deeply, deeply hurt um, simply by knowing about it. And I think it's something that sits with people for a really long time. And I think that's why that there's so much sensational sensationalism around Holocaust stories. I think a lot of people really get into Holocaust stories because I think they want to relive that sense, that shock that they felt when they first heard about it. You know, because it's that's... absolutely like a spiritual moment, like you yeah. said. Yeah, when you is. come to terms with the fact that this occurred and we still have people alive at this very moment in history who lived through it, mm-hmm. when you have to swallow that whole, it is for children like one of the first moments that they have to come to terms en masse with mortality. And beyond that, the potential for true evil that resides within their souls and i find that nobody like nobody at all not like one person will talk about the holocaust once you get older no one talks about holocaust art no one talks about holocaust film or 
anything. It's yeah, all it's so relegated cool. to this like realm of childish education. But the fact is, it remains just as horrifying and unsettling and disturbing. But I can't recall a real life conversation I've had with anyone besides my mother in mm. maybe 10 years in which the Holocaust is rendered as the truly atrocious nightmare that it was. Yeah, that's very true. I think, I mean, I think the only people who talk about it are Jews themselves, which is completely, I mean, justifiable. Um, that's the only time I recall having any conversations about the Holocaust, especially in Melbourne, because a lot of the Russians who live in Melbourne themselves are, are Jewish. And so I think they they themselves, you know, Russian Jews had a bit of a different um experience of a, of a of the holocaust but they they were mm -hmm. still very deeply touched by it and i remember like i going to lots of like holocaust memorial events um because like the russian sunday school i attended was mostly russian jewish kids and so they to them that was an extremely important thing um which is like it was kind of strange i felt you, you feel like a stranger in it but at the same time like the pain of that atrocity is felt so strongly that you can't help but like feel it as well and feel it like very deeply, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like, it's weird that no one talks about it after a certain age. It's like, cause I remember like when, when we first learned about it, it was like all you could talk about. That's all people could talk about. Everyone like started reading Anne Frank. I remember all the girls started reading Anne Frank and, um, you know, I remember, like, I couldn't stop thinking about it myself. And it was, like, something just clicks. I don't know, people just either move on, but I feel like like the, the remnants of that, like, the fear that, oh, us humans did that, like, our own species did that, committed that atrocity, like, that stays there. Yeah, you know, and it fuels, I think, a lot of people's fears and pathologies. But it's it's so interesting to hear how, um, like, I I can't imagine how it must feel when you, your own connection to it is that like someone you're related to was in the SS. That must that would have been kind of like yeah. I'm, I'm interested in how that's actually that actually like manifests. I mean, for you. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and mm. um i my mom is the one who i feel the worst for in mm. having to consider it because she had um a pretty tense relationship with her father and i think it was only kind of revealed his like the severity of his involvement um at his funeral in mm. munchen in germany when we went to when i was 12 and i think her um, I don't want to like use a word like journey, but like her mission to <laughs> understand that and like process it is a lot more severe than mine because, mm. um, like you said, your kind of one of your first moments of uh, recognizing mortality was in processing the education of the Holocaust when you had it. But for me, it was actually like when my grandfather and my grandmother both passed away. Yeah. Uh, my grandparents on my father's side died quite early, and I, I don't... Mm. I, I recall a little bit about my grandfather passing, but it was um, in elementary school for me, mm. and I remember 
my mom's parents both passing away. And uh, it was, you know, knowing these things about them, even as a child a little bit and um, trying to swallow it down and make place of it in this great line of history, I'm still convexed by it. And I have no idea, like, what that means for my existence on Earth, except for the fact that probably, like, many people had to die by my grandfather's hands completely unjustly uh, in order for my existence to happen. Yeah. So I guess like my being on earth is like cursed with this uh, Mm. knowledge, but the only thing I can do about it now is to look back and think about what it all means and try to repurpose it into something new. So like I mentioned earlier, uh, we are going to discuss The Diary of a Young Girl, uh, published in 1948, uh, edited by Otto Frank and written in her own hand by Anne Frank. And uh, this is perhaps one of the most read books ever published, and I think it remains a core part of American education curriculum. Uh, however, they often teach a a censored or kind of cleaned up version of it. And Mm. in the last 20 years, they've released a definitive edition that has, um, or maybe it was the last 30 years, but in any case, it it has a lot of the entries that were cut for sexuality or uh, for breadth. And this remains, despite the fact it being one of the most read books of all time, something completely misunderstood No one has any idea about the true beauty of humanity presented here. And even when I was rereading it for this episode, I was astounded by how much I had no idea was going on within this tome. And I was weeping the entire time I read it. I counted, I cried 12 times. It was an extremely emotional experience for me. And um, I'm curious about how you first came into contact with this diary. Yeah. What's your background with it? Well, it was the same thing. It was introduced to me at school. But to me, that book is a really special book. It was like my first ever, I think, like, she's just like me, um, read. <laughs> like, I remember being 12 years old and um, very very much relating to her inner world. But, yeah, I, I remember being much more innocent and sanitized when I read it because, I don't know, I just uh, rereading it was really eye-opening and just really, uh, uh, I don't know, affirming. Like, I, I, I feel like I, I read the book as a 12-year-old kind of, you know, felt very sorry for her and, you know, was like, she's just like me. She's a little, she's a, t- she's a, like almost teenage girl and she's misunderstood by her parents. And, but like, there's this awful, this awful thing happened to her. She didn't deserve it. And, you know, I closed the book and, and went on with my life. And I think picking that up, picking it back up now recently, it was kind of, it was the same, like it felt the same. It felt just as, um, just as affirming and opening and like the the definitive version is just like so much more accurate to like the actual like process of girlhood um and the actual experience of girlhood um which i feel is 
like it's wrongly I think hidden from people like in, in, in an educational setting I understand that sort of like this uh, parts about sexuality perhaps uh, maybe are ta- taboo or, or something or other but it's it's just so real it's so uh it's something I think that every girl thinks about and it's something that every girl experiences and goes through and I think reading it you feel that you're like wow like you know I guess in a sense like being born female in itself is torturous like because it's just the like the the depth of thought that goes in there and just how much there is inside of her just boiling constantly and is so kind of beautiful and it like the way that she lives that in this sort of quest for you know she's so passionate about writing she just really wants to write she's so committed to her creation to her craft you know as a way of trying to make sense of this chaotic and painful internal and external world that she has been put in against her will you know Mm -hmm. that's no i mean you have it exactly right and i think especially considering um i remember when i was reading it in junior high school for the first time I felt like the sum of my emotion was pity, you know? You feel bad that this girl died so young and so unfairly, but revisiting it, the emotion was so much more expansive and consuming to me because, like you said, her life is boiling over and her passion and ecstasy for being alive and all that entails is so hot and present on the page that when you revisit it and go through it at like a little bit of an older age it is it's truly shocking like how intense it is and feeling feeling how much this girl loves to be alive and reading her most intimate private thoughts especially in the definitive version where the first period and the elements of sexuality and all of her personal truth about her femininity are unabstracted and are clearly present on the page it makes for one of the most powerful reading experiences I've ever had and to basically introduce the book to any idiot who hasn't already been exposed to this for some horrible reason. Uh, This was written in 1942, 1943, and 1944. Uh, Anne Frank was a German-born Jewish girl who uh, had been living in the Netherlands, uh, living um, as normal of a life as possible in World War II, Um, before her sister Margot received an official summons to report to a Nazi work camp in Germany. And so her and her whole family went into hiding in Amsterdam uh, underneath um, the assistance of Miep Gies and uh, Bep Voskujo. I'm going to mispronounce all these names, but it can't be helped. And 
the Anne Frank family, along with uh, one other and a stray member, had to endure life for a grueling uh, nearly two years inside of this annex and uh, this diary, which was given to her shortly before uh, her entrance into the annex, is a record of their daily life in extreme crucifying detail about the intensity, monotony, and interpersonal drama. And um, like you said, it's one of the most boiling over pieces of literature filled with life so hot that it scalds you when you read it. Um, So I'm going to read just a brief uh, passage from very early in this. uh, And she writes... Paper has more patience than people. I thought of this saying on one of those days when I was feeling a little depressed and was sitting at home with my chin in my hands, bored and listless, wondering whether to stay in or go out. I finally stared, uh, stayed where I was, brooding. Yes, paper does have more patience. And since I'm not planning to let anyone else read this stiff-backed notebook, grandly referred to as a diary, unless I should ever find a real friend, it probably won't make a bit of difference. So, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> if you didn't understand the fucking intense realism of this, uh, there it is for you right there. It's It's insane that she's like... I think, like... Um, not enough credit is given to young girls because uh, like reading that that's what you kind of realize like her like that sort of way of thinking like is something that I think is so kind of universal but just like not talked about this like young girlish desire to just like have a friend that understands you and just not getting that and slowly and slowly losing faith in the people that surround you and internalizing mm-hmm. that and like putting it on paper. I think that's, I mean, that's something that I've, maybe I'm projecting on the rest of, I mean, I guess the female population, but um, it's something that I felt really deeply, like I, like at the same sort of like age of puberty was this like longing for someone that I could share my most intimate thoughts with, um, like wanting someone like Kitty, um, in because she addresses all of her diary entries to Kitty, and like never finding that, um, and then just like internalizing that into um, drawing and writing and you know music and things like that. It was. I think it's it's kind of like this 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 there's a moment where something clicks in you and you realize that no one is there to listen to me and no one is there to care about me so I'm just going to have to do this on my own and I think that's what yeah. leads a lot of people a lot of women especially I think to make to start making anything and to start creating art in a sort of sense. I mean, I feel the same way, and I was never, like, a little 13-year-old girl, but she her, like, lust for a beautiful life in which she can be fully expressive and reveal herself in her own totality, Mm. it it feels almost as if she's, like, wise beyond her years, the age of 13 when she's writing this, but 
I actually realized, like, looking back on this, that this is precisely, like, how I felt when I was 13. Like, I truly felt that I was a genius and had so much, like, rich interiority and was completely different from everyone else in the world. And you can tell that the most intense aching in her entire life is the desire to be seen and recognized and held by another. And... It's uncomfortably true how real that is for, like, basically anyone who's artistically inclined, inclined at that age. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's what drives you. It's the drive to be seen. And I'll also to make sense of this, like, feeling inside of you. Because I think when you're, when you're that age, you don't know what is, what, that that's what you're feeling you know, that you just long to be seen and heard. You just, like, have all this stuff coming out of you and you're trying to make sense of it, you know, in a certain way. And I think I think that's what she... I mean, she talks about it. She talks about the that there's two Annas. There's the happy, joyful Anna and there's the Anna that um, writes these letters, you know, and she wishes that she could show the real Anna most of the time. But I think um, as she writes this, she doesn't fully know yet that you know, which one is the real Anna, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's because she's just, like, she recognises this internal chaos and this internal search for, I think she, she she really searches for intensity. She's someone who's very driven by intensity, which is also, I think, an admirable trait in most uh, artists. And I think that that search for intensity is for her a way of making sense of the kind of subconscious chaos that arrives with coming of age which is something yeah, I think it, that, it's yeah it's truly cerebral how how adroitly she reveals her lust for that intensity it is a voyeuristic act to read this diary. Um, Mm. It's revealed kind of like late in the text that she was inspired by a radio broadcast encouraging people to log their experiences during these uh, times of trouble. And so the text that you read um, on the page is highly edited by Anna herself. However, regardless of her like self-editing or anything, she is blistering for this intensity that you mentioned she's a real artist and it is unheard of how articulate she is about those impulses she can be describing just like the interactions at like the kitchen table or how she's feeling about her sister and she masterfully lays out every human drive and it is so breathtaking and frightening at times that that's I think why they got moved to tears over and over again. Yeah, the way she just manages to psychoanalyze every single person in the secret annex, like to a T, you know, the way she talks about Mrs. Van Damme, like every single time I read about Mrs. Van Damme, it was just like she was able to portray this really striking image of this woman, of like this archetypal woman, which is like how does... uh young girl even gauge all of the impulses of this like um you know kind of bored housewife uh flirtatious um neurotic uh (laughs) woman who's just (laughs) causing everyone a hard time you know how did she manage to like 
um, you know, she's like, oh, this is just my like teenage girl complaints about this drama, but it's just this like perfect psychological capture of like every single person that she's living in, you know, she's well, living it's with. It's funny because like the question you're asking has like been brought up over and over again. And yeah. lots of people like to think that one, this was not written by her, that it was written by her father or like two, that it's like a piece of evil Jewish propaganda, like trying to brainwash people into being empathetic. And I could never believe either no. of those things because one of the great qualities of this book is that Anna is like a majorly narcissistic, selfish person constantly making mistakes and then revealing them on the page. Like, especially towards like the beginning of the book when she's still only 13 and is looking around her with a very um, singular worldview, let's say. Mm. She is a little bitch. She is. She's insufferable. (laughs) She's, She's insufferable. It's really funny. And I think it's also like, it's kind of funny that people think of it as like evil Jewish propaganda, like trying to uh, create sympathy um because it's like uh sort of like the way she paints the quarrels between the jewish families is almost like an anti-semitic joke you know it's like these caricatures like the 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 stories of like oh mrs van damme hid the plates because my mom didn't wash the plates or something like that like it was so it's just so like um kind of comical the way she talks about all these interactions and just herself and like the way she argues with her parents it's it's um like so uh i, I don't even know how to describe it it's kind it's of, archetypal yeah it's just like she has such a good gauge of these archetypes uh with her like the way she talks about Miss, mr Dussel, like the, the the man like who has to share a room with her um is also just this like archetypal like neurotic man who she just hates so much and it's like you think back to like um it's just such a perfect capture of like her world and like her way of um i don't know perceiving people it's so accurate in the way that you perceive people at that age of like Dussel is this like awful guy who's just there to like cause her trouble and like blame her on everything and like um you know never let her live her life you know and constantly criticize her her desk inside their room and cause problems about who's allowed to use the desk (laughs) (laughs) you know and then she's like she's like in the next day, she's like, I'm so petty and awful. Like, I shouldn't have said all those things about Dussel and Mrs. Van Damme. But you know that she loves it. Like, she loves saying, she loved, like, spilling all the, like, all of her anger about these people. Because it's like, when you're well, that she, age. Because she's an intense everyone. Gemini, too. Like, yeah. my, oh my mo- the most important <laughs> women in my life, my yeah. mother, Azealia Banks, and my best friend, Ava, Kanye West, and Donald Trump, they're all, <laughs> they're all Geminis. And so she... Sense. Geminis have a really incredible quality where they are deeply self-reflective people, but they also betray their own reflection all the time. And she writes about herself, 
In bed at night, as I ponder my many sins and exaggerated shortcomings, I get so confused by the sheer amount of things I have to consider that I either laugh or cry depending on my mood. Then I fall asleep with this strange feeling of wanting to be different than I am, or being different than I want to be, or perhaps of behaving differently than I am or who I want to be. And this quality that she has, that the little Miss Frank has for editing her character and improving and managing her perception in the world is utterly breathtaking to me. It is. And it's just, it, it, I think it's kind of like in itself, like a, a, a characterization of her like artistic drive. I think that's something that's like this quest to constantly improve yourself because you see yourself as this like wretched entity in that's like ruining everything for yourself you know it's this want to like i need to be better i need to um you know be different it's like such as i don't know the self-reflective quality that um exists that, that that she kind of embodies in the book is so uh moving it's inspiring and aspirational yes it's so mo- that yeah exactly it's inspiring and aspirational it's very, I don't know. Yeah. No, I know it, it's transfixing and, and magical as well because mm. I, I've read um, a few diaries that have been published, like those of Anise Nin, and I've always found her stuff to be quite like affected. And obviously, Anna Frank has her narrative voice that she is um, cultivating throughout her editing and what she chooses to present and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. But that specific like self-reflexive drive is so unique in her and it also leads her like you said to have like the most like amusing like little observations of everything going on around her you feel like she's deadly and could just read you at the drop of a hat like um i don't think father has a very nice business nothing but pectin and pepper as long as you're in the food business why not make candy (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like or when she starts like criticizing mrs van damme for being a flirt or like the most touching uh parts of me were just like when she talks about her relationship with her parents and how gradually that disintegrates um she like begins by it's like this like electra like this she has this like electra complex which she is weirdly aware of but at the same time not aware of like she begins with this idealization of her father and this hatred of her mom well not hatred but like deep criticism of her mom this constant like i would never mother this way and i would never um my mother is a failure of morals and is no person i could ever aspire to be yes And, and then it's like oh but pim is so nice he's so um Oh, not Pim, sorry. But Dad, he's so, like, nice. He's so kind and so gentle. But then eventually that also fades because her dad fails to, like, understand her, like, her in the moments where she reveals herself to him in a a very kind of, like, in a bat to try and connect with him or, like, make sense of her Mm -hmm. own world. And it just reiterates as to why she keeps coming back to this diary, you know? Um, why she keeps coming yeah, back, back to, to Kitty, Kitty back over to and Kitty. over again. Yeah, I mean, one of the most brutal passages in the book that shocked me to my core is when 
Anne's mother comes up to pray with her because her father is doing, you know, something gross in this little annex. And she turns her away. And when her mother comes and says, oh, like, can I be the one that prays with you tonight? She turns her mother away and her mother descends into like a week long depression that is only revealed like several entries later. And that was so real to me because I remember in my own quest for individuation and establishing my personhood being utterly cruel and evil to my parents uh, for what I thought was best and you can see her like beginning to like regret and reconsider a lot of that over the course of the book but no matter what happens she always like slips in back to the mode of like rebelling (laughs) against her parents yeah and it's it's kind of uh, crazy how I feel like the boiling point of that obviously was never reached because her life was cut so short and mm. you only feel it once you're in the like last part of the book. I think in the like one of her last entries she talks about um, the subject of like women and girls from this like she's just this, she's like I read this thing in a book about women and girls um, and I would like to discuss it but it just turns into this like long rant about how her parents just don't understand her and her expression of femininity which is like which is like I something that I deeply related to kind of in my own quest for individuation because mm-hmm. like how you just find yourself feeling like being so cruel to your own parents and assessing them in such a cruel way but as a way of as like a way of trying to figure out yourself you know, it's it's the sort of thing where like, and then feeling the intense guilt and shame from from doing so. You know, and, and it's like something that I feel like I still feel to this day. And it's it's just it's so touching. And like her letter that she writes to her dad, like that was the point where to me, like I I was brought to tears. It was like so. And he himself also goes into like a, a week long depression over it as well. Like you can, you can tell that there's like so much love, but that for some reason that love doesn't seem to register on both ends. And I think that's part of the reason why, um, like Anne becomes such an idealist. I think she's a real idealist at heart. Mm -hmm. The kitty to her is this like real ideal of, of a person it's not even that she a friend she wants i think she herself wants to be like a kitty this like bland this blank slate that's capable of understanding and making sense of her own world you know she Mm -hmm. she seeks to this sort of this this i very idyllic um i don't know form of expression and i think that's very much because of the lack of connection in her life, you know, because she talks I mean, about yeah. Sorry, you go. The, like no, no, it's fine. I'm just the the, ex, the extremities to which she's unconnected and mm. removed uh, from the world are so unbelievably severe. Mm. Being locked in this annex, which yeah. she fortunately like goes into enough detail to like tell you about how horrific it is to be stuck in one place with seven other people for years like that's all there but she manages to like totally stumble across like one of the 
infinite questions of human nature, which is how do you love the person who engendered you with life and loves you, and yet you have to deliberately cut yourself off and divide from them in order to create your own being. Yeah. And the process in which that happens is so painful and traumatizing for literally every person in the world. And it only gets more complicated with additional layers that it's like, she invites you to ponder upon that yourself. And it's like, I think about the ways that I've tried to like differentiate myself from my own parents. And it makes me think about how my mom probably like, had to fight tooth and nail to make herself feel distinct from her father. And uh, it continues in this grand loop of cyclical humanity. And it's so amazing to me that she gets it so right and so deeply and so painfully just by writing about her true feelings in her little diary. Yeah. To Kitty. To Kitty, yeah. Like, Kitty is, like, perfect friend. And, like... I was really struck by her relationship with Peter, the way she... Oh, my God. Yeah, and in the in the end, when she's like, I only used intimacy to try and connect with him, but I never was able to reveal the truth of my, like, worldview and of my being. That part felt so... It was so breaking because Peter himself is someone who is also so deeply longing for um, affection and connection and intimacy. But she only uses sort of the veneer of her intimate world to try and somehow at least replicate connection, which at the end she finds herself unhappy with either way. And it's, Mm. it's kind of like, and he himself is like this like, I guess she kind of, I know, she kind of, I feel bad for him. I feel like she kind of uses him to realize herself or to discover herself in a sense, like, um, because it's like she, she, at first she doesn't feel much towards him. She's quite antagonistic of him. And then she, you know, they become friendly. And then suddenly it's just like intense, undying, obsessive love for Peter. And which just then, oh. like, fades away to this, like... Well, she's very good at, like, organizing yeah. her subjectivity in the yes. like, presentation of the novel. Because when she's writing to herself as Kitty about mm. these feelings, she decides in the way she styles her own life that the Peter that's locked up with her in this annex is... Has uh, she describes it as literally melting with her memory of a completely different person, a different person named Peter that she uh, mm. describes as her one true love. Yeah. And in the dawn of her sexuality and as she starts to get her period and experiencing these intense, like hallucinogenic dreams, mm. um, in the organization of her own life within this diary, she decides that these two people have melded into one. Yeah. And this impulse is so mature and so, like, uncannily reminiscent to me. I can't even tell you how many times I have broadcast lovers in my own life as people from my past, and looking at them in the face, I have reorganized their beings into something I can 
reappropriate from some, you know, former love I had. And the fact that she was doing this at the age of, like, I guess she was, like, 14 or 15 at this point Mm. in the diary. Not only was she doing it, but she was also self-aware enough to, like, write about it is one of the greatest, like, literary feats of all time. I agree. And I think it's such a perfect capture of, like, um, like, romantic longing. I think it was one of like the first it was one of the first times in a while where I read about that kind of longing for someone and like found it in in any way relatable I think it's mm-hmm. it, she's just Me very too. yeah I think I know I don't know I think this goes into a kind of a greater rant I think that the way that like uh romantic longing is sort of written about in current literature you know you think of your like sally rooney's and colleen hoover's and stuff like that it's very different to what is like the way it's described um by anne and i found i find anne's description a lot more kind of uh how do you say like relatable in a sense because it's it's i think it's honest about her own like she's so honest about her subjectivity as you said and she, she like so organized about her subjectivity that it's kind of like a perfect portrayal of like the flaws of her longing mm-hmm. and how her longing is the very cause of her own um kind of internal suffering in a sense it's kind of like yeah, I don't know. It's it's much more deeper. It's much deeper than than what you would usually see in. Like, no, you put it so lucidly. Like that's yeah. precisely the same feeling I had when I was stumbling across the passages of her describing her um, first inklings of love. Um, she, she writes in this one entry that made me like break out into tears. There is a saying: "Time heals all wounds." That's how it was with me. I told myself I'd forgotten Peter and no longer liked him in the least. But my memories of him were so strong that I had to admit to myself that the only reason I no longer liked him was that I was jealous of the other girls. This morning, I realized that nothing has changed. On the contrary, as I've grown older and more mature, my love has grown along with me. I can understand now that Peter thought I was childish, and yet it still hurts to think he'd forgotten me completely. I saw his face so clearly. I knew for certain that no one but Peter could have struck in my mind that way. (gasps) Just, yeah, like... (laughs) Do you, like, have a really, like, extreme emotion to her going through her period? Because it... Yes, yes. Oh my god, it fucked me up. I could not believe it. Yeah, well, it's the crazy thing. Like, it's this thing... I mean, I think about this all the time. It's, um... Like just that, how the process of from, like of turning into a girl to a woman is truly like a hell in itself. It's this very deeply like emotional and like difficult thing to go through, and the way she just writes about it is so like to me was really real. Like she awaited she waited for her period so much i remember like i remember she writes about how she's like um 
she, like she was wait she was waiting for it uh, for it to finally happen and then when it finally happens she talks about it being the secret that she likes having that she likes hiding from everyone I literally have this passage highlighted because it <laughs> shocked me so much she says whenever I get my period and that's only been three times I have the feeling that in spite of all the pain discomfort and mess I'm carrying around a sweet secret so even though it's a nuisance in a certain way I'm always looking forward to the time when I'll feel that secret inside me once again it's yeah and it's like a very like I've never heard that described but it's so real it's such a real feeling like the period is such a like constant like the period being a new thing in your life is such a weird state I find like and I and I catch myself kind of now older and like treating my period as sort of like a come and go thing but then like mm-hmm. suddenly it won't like it hits me like that it hits you that like you know you're just going about your life but like your womb is shedding you know your 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 there's like this this constant uh bodily function is occurring in you and that like you fi- you suddenly remember yourself as like a little girl seeing like having a period for the first time and the like horror but excitement that follows it and the like yeah that feeling of like i have a secret and no one knows and I don't know. It's it's yeah. The way she wrote about her period was extremely moving, which I didn't expect at all. Me too. <laughs> I think you got it. I think you got it like exactly right because to her, like her period blood is not just like this sort of habit that you eventually sink into. It's like proof of her development that she so desperately seeks to make real with her diary and her daily behavior but the only physical evidence she has to it whatsoever is inside of her vagina and like the fact that she can recognize this and put it onto i mean i keep saying this over and over again but it feels so pressing and true especially as like later in the book when she starts going up to the attic with peter and she's constantly talking about how nature is this beautiful force and it feels like almost pontlian in a way about how seriously she takes her menstruation is it is it menstruation when you have your period that's menstruating right yeah that's menstruating okay great i just wanted to check the greater i think but the greater cycle of like menstruating and then ovulating and then like not having it's called the menstrual cycle i got it (laughs) anyway but um yeah no it's 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 completely right and like i as it's like i don't know yeah it's it's so beautifully written and i think it's like a like her connection to nature as Mm -hmm. she grows up is so striking and so just um like relatable i mean and i think it's just the parts where she looks up where she talks about how you know everything around her is plagued by tragedy and atrocity and sadness and pain when she looks up into the sky and she sees like how blue it is and the um she's constantly talking about the tree the ac- acorn like there's a there's a tree in i think front it's of like there. a chestnut tree yeah chestnut tree yeah she talks about the chestnut tree in front of her in front of her in front of the secret annex and 
how connect like she she it's like as if she has this like connection to the chestnut tree and the chestnut tree it's like this synchronicity like Mm. the way the state of the chestnut tree kind of links to her own view of the world and like when she talks about how much hope she gains from nature it's something that I I felt that so deeply and I think it's also like it's the same sort of thing as with her period it's this like Parlian um connection of like connecting your femininity to the rest of the like surrounding natural world around you which is also just something that I find is not talked about um a lot it's kind of like I don't know maybe perhaps even frowned upon this like the the I guess the like biological reality of no not even the biological like constant of like you know puberty and like female puberty and like feeling how this like process that you go through is this constant thing and it's just as cost- constant as the chestnut tree that's in front of her house i don't uh, know I, I maybe i sound insane no no that's beautifully I, said and i completely <laughs> relate to you because i haven't read or watch anything outside of like rewatching carrie last year that mm. channels puberty into something authentic and honest and even if this wasn't produced with like the looming threat of apocalyptic death quite literally outside her window this still Mm. feels to me that this would be one of the most important pieces of a cubescent art ever made um yeah like it feels that's what i go ahead that's why i think that otto frank did not write it at all i don't think a man could ever describe like that kind of pubescent reality yeah certainly no heterosexual man no completely not like that's why this like the idea of it being written by her father let alone is just just bogus i just completely (laughs) don't believe it and i don't want to believe it i want to believe that anne frank was this passionate beautiful human being on earth because Especially when you contextualize it, because it's amazing. We have gone so deep into her personal life, into her relationship with her mother, and her relationship with her own maturation, that mm-hmm. we've barely even touched about the fact that, like, immediately beyond her window, there is gun warfare and genocide occurring within one degree of separation. And the yeah. fear and nightmare of that... I want to believe in this 13, 14, 15-year-old girl who was able to peer deepest inside of her face inside of herself in the face of true apocalypse and find something so glistening and pure. I want to be optimistic enough to believe that's real. Yeah, and I think like I feel like if she had written more about the war this book would actually not be as as ironic as that is this book would not be as meaningful as it is because it's like it's kind of the like an emotional roller coaster is like when you read this deeply personal passage and then the next one is just like a telling of the current news those ones like that shift for me was very like um I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's jarring kind of like, and shocking. It's jarring and shocking, and it's like distancing. Like the the parts that are where they where she talks about war, 
have this like Brechtian Verfen Dunks effect to it. It's like this kind of like distancing effect where you're just like, well, okay, I'm I'm not in this girl's inner world. This is a young girl who's who's like experiencing extreme violence and tragedy, you know. Yeah. But then suddenly you're back into these like really intimate. Suddenly you're like next next page is Mrs. Van Damme is such a bitch, you know. It's like <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like um, I find I find the like switch between her personal life, her internal life, and then war. That's such a like. It's such a crazy um, like whiplash. It that, is. It's totally whiplash. Yeah. And it's because, like, we've gone on and on about her interiority is so dazzlingly realized that when all of a sudden someone is breaking into the warehouse underneath their secret annex and rummaging about and knocking things over and police officers are picking things up and putting them down on this single bookshelf that divides them from the West, rest of the world, were these not these sequences, like, not totally horrifying to you because i rem- i was reading them and it was like getting sweaty and yeah. stressed out yeah no they're stressful they're they're so like they're so, they're very like atmospheric in a sense like you just you feel it in your like bones you you feel the um yeah no i was also sweating i was like i was feeling like i was on the brink of like having a panic attack reading those parts and it was quite in intense <laughs> I, I mean just, the physical yeah. universe of these diaries is so intricately realized and yet i feel mm. like everyone who imagines the annex having not been there myself would picture mm. it somewhat differently and for me like the image I have of it in my head is so ornately sketched out because of all of these endless aesthetic details of the potatoes and the stink of the kitchen when the food and milk rots or Mm. precisely the way she's organized photos of movie stars on her wall and the... Oh, I love that part. Me too. The part with the movie stars. I was like, yes. God, it's this <laughs> little girl. Like, she just has fucking movie stars up on her wall. And, like, she's obsessed with, like, Greek and Roman myths. And <laughs> when she starts yeah. styling her hair differently every day to appear like different movie stars. Oh, God. And she's just so adorable. And, like, her thoughts and interests are so beautiful and amazing. Like, I read that and I'm like, if this girl had a, had a Twitter... Like, I would be her number one fan. Like, I would... I think she would be a genius. But, um... Sorry, I interrupted you, because no. I have the detail about the movie stuff. No, I'm, I'm, I was so charmed by that, too. Who cares what I was talking about? I just, like... I think she is one of the most beautiful souls to have ever walked the earth. And I don't no. know about you, but I have such a visceral reaction looking at any photograph of her because I have now spent so much time lavishing over this girl's thought processes processes, and I have felt so much intensity about her love affairs and I have related so deeply with her that when I see like her smiling face like holding a pen like writing this diary that she is voyaging to transfigure her whole life with I am... 
I'm floored. Deeply moved. I'm yes. deeply moved. I couldn't Same. even hold this book sometimes because I couldn't look at her face. It would start to make me get very emotional. Yeah, I um, I re-listened after finishing it. I re-listened to um, Airplane Over the Sea uh, by mm-hmm. Neutral Milk Hotel, which is like, like it's like this, I, mean, you know, I feel like you would know it. I'm very familiar. Yeah, and it's like, because I remember it being about Anne Frank and the parts of it that are about Anne Frank and being quite um, perplexed as to why Jeff Magnum wrote in so much detail and was so obsessed with Anne Frank. And then, like, re-listening to it after reading and being so deeply moved by that book, like, it made me weep, like, the same time Mm -hmm. that I'd listened to it for the first time as, like, a 14-year-old or something. Like, I, I remember I was walking on the street and listening to like fucking neutral milk hotel and crying to it and like it was this album that i completely kind of cast away and forgotten about it's just like 4chan mu board thing mm-hmm. i mean we just have to like live in the shadow of like our cultural like, like- you know everyone in my generation completely understand it's like yeah it's like an mk ultra signal at this point mm-hmm. like it's it's like you know i completely understand why um, Jeff Magnum, uh, the lyricist and singer in that album, was so touched and moved by Anne Frank, and you have this like, like this desire to like preserve her because she's so pure and so beautiful and such a beautiful soul. And reading it, knowing exactly what happened to her—that she like died of typhoid fever in a concentration camp with her with sister, her head shaved, with her head shaved. You know, and hearing about her doing like different hairstyles every day and the movie posters, you just like it's not the like feeling of sorriness that you feel when you read it for the first time at school. It's a deep feeling of like, I want to save her. I want her to be happy. I want her to make art and live. You I know? want That's her to I have want. the life that she wanted for herself because she was, <laughs> she like, Okay, I want to read this passage. Um, She writes, It's utterly impossible for me to build my life on a foundation of chaos, suffering, and death. I see the world being slowly transformed into a wilderness. I hear the approaching thunder that one day will destroy us too. I feel the suffering of millions. And yet, when I look up at the sky, I somehow feel that everything will change for the better. That this cruelty too shall end that peace and tranquility will return once more. In the meantime, I must hold on to my ideals. Perhaps the day will come when I'm able to realize them. And she puts an exclamation point on the last <laughs> sentence. <laughs> so, like, I remember, like, reading that was the part that for me. I was like, this is so beautiful. Because, because you know like, what happens to her after she has, you know like... <laughs> After she's been styling her hair after all of these women that she emulates and is just so happy to be alive. And then you know that when the diary ends and she it has just, just ends been... And the, <laughs> the, the way the diary just ends and then you have like a little thing about like what ended up happening to everyone in the secret addicts. It's like, it's just that whole... Like, <laughs> I mean, she had just been <laughs> reflecting once again on, on the duality of herself, and it's like she was only fifteen and could have like expanded this into so much more. Like she was such, she was so alive, and then yeah, it just stops. 
it just it just ends and it's so oh, <sighs> it's yeah i mean like the thing is I, as i told you before we started recording i was reading atomized at the same time as reading diary of Anne frank mm-hmm. like i was reading atomized and i read diary of Anne frank and then i continued reading atomized and atomized is the most hateful book I've ever read in my life. It's the most hateful, hopeless book that I've ever read. And like that one passage made me just think to myself, like, God, Welbeck is so wrong about so much in that, like in his writing, (laughs) because this one 15 year old girl just encapsulated how beautiful everything is despite Mm. all of this darkness how there's so much to live for and that like people like that you know someone like her with such a beautiful view of the world just got utterly destroyed is just so heartbreaking i mean she just pillaged so deep into her own self (gasps) and she had so much concern and interest into the inner workings of her own mind that it ended up expanding into this like landscape of true appreciation for being alive and it's so it's so moving and it makes me want to just like attack anyone who can't like open their window in the morning and look up at the sky and like realize that like life can be beautiful because Anne Frank fucking did it in that annex with sweaty Miss Van Dance like the worst person in the world <laughs> like Dussel <sighs> and like literal Dussel. war war waging outside of her house outside of her like home which is which you talked about the fucking plane that like crashes onto the school like (laughs) oh and now whenever i look at a picture of her i just Mm. i begin to quiver honestly like i'm I'm never gonna be able to let go of that feeling um i stumbled on youtube upon an audiobook um, I like skipped through it. Read by Winona Ryder. Uh huh. Have you have you listened to the Winona Ryder audiobook of the end? It's it's pretty good because I, I remember in in my primary school they made us listen to this audiobook which was read by some British woman and it was really weird and surreal hearing this like woman read this young girl's diary. But Winona Ryder kind of managed to sort of portray more of a girlishness through it, but the cover of the like audiobook cd dvd thing is like like a series of pictures of Anne frank smiling and then a series of like winona Ryder, like also in black and white like smiling which was just just, like it felt kind of wrong and perverted but like i couldn't help but just feel so moved by the like blocked pictures of like um and Frank, it like making different faces and posing for a photo, like she's so. Oh god, I'm no, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm like shaking again. Like the one image I have trained in my eye is like her looking vaguely over her left shoulder with a big smile on her face, like this that girl one, yeah. who, like, God, who just like knew herself so well. I, I completely support using her image for artistic mission and channeling her lust for life and her beautiful unwieldy energy her selfish narcissism i appreciate people putting her out there and continuing this forward um i'm glad i read her in school i'm even more glad i reread her um 
when you are faced with something as horrifying as the Holocaust and you have even one bright light of effervescent truth and self-interest, I mean, it it really is, like, I have such, like, a pit in my stomach. It's, like, it's inspiring beyond words. It's, yeah, it's, that's, you put it so right. And I think, I really think that this is a book that everyone should read twice Multiple in their times. life. Yes, at different stages of their life. My mom has this theory with um, Master and Margarita by Bulgakov um, mm-hmm. that you need to read it once when you're 14 and be really touched by all the naive symbolism of it. But then once again, when you're in your mid thirties because it's, and then you get touched by the reality of it. And um, she used to like gatekeep art from me being like, you're not ready for that yet. You need to live through these experience and stuff. But I feel like, like Anne Frank is something that is the same. It's something that everyone needs to read like at least twice in their life. At the very least. I can't wait to read it again in, like, in 10 years, but I can't... Yes. I really can't swallow another reading of it until then because it is so intense and my entire week has been raked apart by reading this book and going back through it. It's been so extreme for me that I, I can't wait to read it again in 10 years, but I cannot open it again until then. Same. I can't. I feel like I can't look at a picture of Anne Frank without like at least having the impulse to cry. Oh my god! I can't. I I, like. I get the chills every time. (laughs) Like when you posted her. um, I wish I hadn't posted that because I was only like twenty pages into my rereading when I was like, I'm literally her, which I am literally her. But like, (laughs) I don't. You can't abuse her like that. She's not a meme. It's not funny. <laughs> but I remember seeing that photo and being like almost brought to tears. Like it was, it was way too intense. If I was like out and about tomorrow and like someone just like flashed me a photo of Anne Frank, I would scream. I would, yeah, I would like fall down and like start crying in the fetal position. This is why it's, people it's, have to expose themselves to this over and over again. One of my coworkers who was like, oh, like you're talking about like Anne Frank on the podcast. Why? Isn't it a little overdone? No. People do not understand that this is one of the most emotionally terrorizing works of published fiction to ever be released. Sorry, not fiction. It's nonfiction. They don't understand. It's like one of the most like shocking pieces of literature ever made public. Ever. Literally. Exactly. And the fact that the most shocking pieces, like, like I have read such shocking literature, you know, you and like when you, when you, when you constantly seek out intense art, you know, you feel part of you a bit desensitized after a certain point. But it's like, it's like, you know what Jack says about Titanic being the most violent movie he's ever seen? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is the most emotionally charged, emotionally devastating books I have read in ages, in like the longest time, you know? And you don't expect it because you're like, because I remember when you said Anne Frank, I myself, I was like, Oh really, Anne Frank? Okay, that's that's gonna be interesting. I guess they're both about. Uh, I bet guess both Suspiria and Anne Frank are about uh, fascism in a certain sense. And then I re- reread it, and I was like, oh my god, I completely get it. I completely understand exactly the intensity and of 
of this piece of art, which I like, even though it's nonfiction, it's a piece of art. And also just how misunderstood this girl is, you know? Oh, and no and one like, is ever going to be able to... I mean, she is such a universal, complex human and so enormous in her interiority that even if you spent the rest of your life reading this over and over again, her totality is impossible to bring into your own spirit. It's so... It's that big. And the universality of it and the infinite quality that is Anne Frank, like, that is why this book is so essential is because she creates human life within her diary in such perfection that the unknowability of it and the endless possibility for joy, ecstasy, terror, sexuality, anger, all of it exists in these pages. And that infinite quality of it makes it one of the most important books ever. I, I, I'm so glad I reread it. I, I like. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's <laughs> let's cut it there for the first segment. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Okay. I'm gonna have a cigarette really quick, and then hopefully regain a little bit of um emotional Spirit. composure. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can talk about Suspiria. <laughs>
I'm sorry to say that the cigarette, like, didn't help at all because I, like, was thinking about, like, the fact that I had to pee and that Anne Frank, like, could not pee in the mornings. Like, they had to use, like, a chamber pot. And then I, like, looked at every single light on the Shinjuku skyline and just thought about the endless multitudes of life and possibilities that were never extended to her that, um, makes me feel, like... Um, a, a helpless little shrimp but the important thing is to evoke her essence to inspire true powerful living in your life and not to become installed with nihilism exactly and to inspire the constant commitment to your craft as she was so committed to her craft I think that's the most inspiring thing about her yeah. is that despite of all that happens she stayed committed to writing Exactly. Well, we're now talking about the 2018 remake of Suspiria, directed by Luca Guadagnino, uh, with a screenplay by someone named David Cognac. It's like... Cognac. Yeah, I guess he's American, but I don't know how to say that. But um, I talked about Suspiria earlier this season with my drag queen friend Natmara and um, mm. I've had a very intense relationship with this movie to be honest I hated it when I first saw it it pissed me off I was supposed to go see it in theaters and the viewing got cancelled basically when I watched it on a projector in my friend John's house I was um, confounded and frustrated and it was only after about a year and a half of constantly thinking about the movie and revisiting it and replaying it over and over again that I realized that it had really struck a chord with me um, but before we get into talking about the plot or the elements of the holocaust or anything else that play in this movie um, you mentioned to me your first time watching it was uh, in uh, 2022 right? Yeah, the first time I watched Suspiria, actually, the first time I watched both Suspirias was in 2022. Um, like, the Dario Argento one was something that I was always kind of orbiting. I was a terminally online girl doing ballet. So, I mean, like, I used to, you know, be on, like, pro-anorexia Tumblr and stuff like that. And people loved Dario Argento Suspiria in those circles of the internet. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just something that I always saw and I was like, this is visually really appealing, but I just never somehow got to watch it. And then, um, yeah, I fell extremely ill halfway through this year. I think it was sort of um, my immune system completely dropped from a lot of stress because um, I had been doing full-time dance for the first time um, at a, a kind of full-time dance school in Melbourne and at the same time working and, you know, just life in general and I think it all kind of got to me at one point and I completely fell ill and I had nothing to do um and so I watched movies and I usually when I'm sick I always watch Lost in Translation because I, I just it's one of my favorite films but I I'd finished watching that and I needed I needed more so I decided that I'd go down the path of Suspiria watch Suspiria um the Dario Argento one and I Funnily enough, I enjoyed it visually. I really liked the soundtrack, but I found it, I found that there was no, not enough to it. And then um, I have these two friends, um, they're both twins and one is gay and one is straight. And they're both, they both, they're both obsessed with film in general. And they told me that their favorite film together was Suspiria 2018. And I was like, okay, well, I'll watch it. And 
it was the most moving film I think I have seen in a very long time. It was just so accurate in portraying kind of the internal emotional hell of just the the state of the, the internal emotional hell that you feel when you're a dancer full time. It felt so accurate to like how I had felt and at the same time it felt so shocking. Mm-hmm. It like I remember watching it and after the final scene, like I think the moment the final scene just began and like you you know, she walks in and you see the like girls jumping doing all the like ritualistic dance stuff. I just started uncontrollably crying. Just just so much just sobbing so (laughs) like Mm -hmm. like a baby you know um and yeah i haven't been affected by art in in such a long time and it was so refreshing and it was quite surprising given that i heard some pretty um shitty reviews but i guess i guess suspiria by dario argento is something kind of permanently locked in this like hipster um, I I knew it before it was popular um, cultural phenomenon that kind of has an attribute of insufferability to it. But you feel a bit naughty. You feel a bit naughty when you like the Guadagnino version. I feel a bit naughty for liking the uh, Guadagnino version more than this uh, Argento version. Yeah, because it's like it's it's like Anne Frank with her like period. I'm like it's that's my little secret is that I think it's better. No, but, I, the yeah. thing for me is that. Um, neither film can successfully exist without the other and yeah even though i I really did um like a praising review of the original argento 1977 one on the show earlier i think it Mm -hmm. is massively enhanced by the presence of this film and yeah i refuse to decry either of them at this point um and i think (laughs) that they really do truly make a chorus together because it's almost like the last two episodes of Evangelion paired with the end of Evangelion. So <laughs> the original 1977 yeah. is the superficial, hyper-stylized, um, kind of perverse, wet dream of a post-Nazi 1977 Berlin. And this remake that we're talking about at long last on my show is the political and emotional and sexual literalization of all of the unspoken themes and embedded contexts that existed in the previous. And when I was revisiting this uh, most recently, um, Jack's reading of it is is one of the most condemning um, pieces of female sexual art ever made. I agree with him, but Mm. I found that my former previous gripe which is that it was far too wide-reaching and stretched into too many different political themes i was completely wrong and the fact that it kind of not superficially but without seemingly a lot of depth extends itself into ideas of post-holocaust trauma and memory and all of these ideas, I now realize that this is one of the most, like, wide-scoped imaginations of the human experience that's been put to film in in quite a while. 
Yeah, and it's a kind of very similar in that way to, um, I think, uh, Diary of Anne, like Diary of a Young Girl, because it's um, like it's something that's a bit. I think it's a bit discounted as not given enough credit as to how much of a scope it actually captures. Mm-hmm. Yet it's one of the most intense um, captures of like the like it's literally like what you just described. Like I think people don't describe that much meaning to it um, to Suspiria 2018 as much as actually is due. Mm. Um, like. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's just really just like not not recognized as this really wide-reaching. Well, it's it's uh, very easy to dismiss it because number one, it's yeah. a remake technically. Number yeah. two, like it's um a sort of like a twenty-four adjacent horror film, um, which is a genre very prone to producing superficially insightful pieces of horror art and like third it is so like audacious in the amount of subject matter it wants to approach that the easier thing to do is to just say no this is too intellectual this is too heady it's not smart enough it's it's this and this and this instead of realizing that this is a truly challenging film that is uh approaching every single layer of 1977 humanity yeah it's like it's such a i still feel like i don't fully comprehend it and i think that's what i like most about it i think that's the that i found most appealing but i also think that that's what people find most unappealing about it um I guess it's just like for me it was kind of a simple uh decision is that I found that the choreography like I was really happy that the choreography in it was much more thought through that there's so much actually portrayed about like so much sexuality and so much unconscious like um uh, like uh meaning portrayed through the way that the people in that whole film moved you know and it was really sort of meaningful how they had cast uh how they made the character of madame blanc played by tilda swinton one of the three characters played by tilda swinton yes one of the three um they made her uh basically they modeled her off Pina Bausch, uh, who was a German choreographer and who herself, like her, her works capture a lot of this, like she, she was making, um, her work and also around the seventies in Germany and stuff, which also carries this like deep pain and deep, uh, internal, like, uh, like, rumination over sort of like society and the way that German like people in Germany lived their lives after the war but portrayed through this she like Pina Bausch's work is portrayed through this really strange surrealism you mm-hmm. know it's a it's like surrealist dance which is very strange to look at and it's the first dance work like her dance works were the first ones that ever triggered like actual emotion in me 
And I think that the choice to make Tilda Swinton play a character who's just basically Pina Bausch, she's dressed like Pina Bausch, she acts like what Pina Bausch uh, acts, um, is such a correct choice. You know, it's so, um, like, meaningful. And it's so, like, um, like, I don't even know how to how to say it. I'm lost for words. No, you got it exactly I, right. Because like, yeah. Luca Guadagnino, who I talked about with um my uh, an Italian Lotus episode when I talked about Call Me by Your Name. There is one mm-hmm. thing that he is particularly talented with, and that is mm. the textural surface of Europe. Like, yes, his imagination of European history. He he said that Suspiria is his most personal film. His, like, lineage of iconography and fame and particular, like, statue heads of culture, the way he employs them in his work is exactly correct. And Tilda Swinton as Madame Blanc in this is so fully fleshed out, despite the fact we, like, we see her in, like, a number of scenes. There's, like, little characterization, but her as this, um dance teacher is exactly what you're talking about it's like an eternal european moment on screen it's and not only it's an eternal like she that woman like that dance teacher is such a real thing like that is the dance teacher this like terrifying caring figure that you know around which an entire world like which just creates this entire world out of these other people's bodies you know Mm -hmm. it's like she was like i think i've had like every teacher i've had like embodied that character and it was kind of really crazy i remember when i watched it at the same time i had this very energetically demanding teacher who was who was who was teaching me and like she was the kind of teacher, like, at the end of the class, you feel like your whole soul was getting sucked out of it. And, like, seeing Madame Blanc and, like, when she would have these, like, intense conversations with um, Susie about the the sort of dancing and stuff, it felt so uncanny. And I think that's why I was so touched by this piece. But, yeah, it's so eternally European. You're so right about that. Like Like, I never thought about that with Luca Guadagnino. But he is so good at portraying the depth of European history, I think. And, like, I found that when – because I watched Bones and All recently, and that's set in America. And the thing that I found was lacking was this sense of environment, I guess, like of the historical environment. Yeah, but because like, it was set in the US. Meanwhile, like in Suspiria, like the tactile world of this is – fucking corporeal every yeah you can smell this movie from a mile away because everything smells like wet gloopy soupy fabric it smells like wet sweaters the oppressive like berlin outfit of this whole movie placed um and Mm -hmm. set immediately against the berlin wall you are accosted with an endless like sense of like rainy clothes and like creepy Mm. pussy smells and piss and it all congeals into like the most like 
realistic post-Holocaust Europe I yeah ever say I've seen on film. And the, like, the part about, like, the RAF is so, like, it, it, like I, was, I was so intrigued by Me them including too. that. <laughs> because I remember learning about the RAF in, like, modern European history, and it was such, like, a fascinating thing to me like and it was it's just not talked about like all the plane hijackings and all and that and that whole historical moment which i, I think I feel is the actually same way about like the united red army in japan which was like this communist yeah. movement that hijacked a ton of planes bombed buildings killed loads of people and that- is that the one that that like guitarist from the release Denu day was in mm-hmm do, do, do you know literally seeing the day that I noise sure band do yeah yeah was were they was he in in that or she is it he or she I don't know I think he was one in of the, them wasn't I think he was like in the student revolution but that was basically they conducted and organized by the United Fred Army yeah. so it's basically comparable but it is incredible that there is this like deep intense violent political history that also just like evaporates out of the memory of everyone and one extremely special quality of Suspiria is this movie's relationship with memory because this being set in a very politically fraught 1977 as the uh German I guess they called it the German autumn is that what they called it yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. As this is happening in the background of this movie, like mm. you get a sense of everything that has toppled down, exploded and reformed in Germany in this year. And mm. it is a uniquely like cold and isolating experience because I think most people who would um depict this kind of mood uh, would try to reach for something like Wagnerian and grand scale and try to compose some symphony of everything. But yeah. the tone of this, because of the, the the Tom York soundtrack, is like downtrodden and rainy and muddy and tragic. It's, yeah, and it's so, like, I love how it's all of the kind of political, um, like, anguish occurs as, like, this background thing like it's it's not ex- that explicit but at the same time it's extremely jarring you know you can't help but not notice it and if you know anything about that time period you're like it's so perfectly inserted like I just found this like I really loved the scenes where they're sitting all together you know and those like witchy in that like witchy dinner thing and like listening to the radio and they're talking about another plane hijacking and stuff like that like it's um it's in like it's it's something that i felt very like it felt really real because it's this like ma- like the process of like making being really involved in a very intense art form meanwhile this like political turmoil and chaos is happening like i felt that this year like very strongly because of the war in ukraine you know it's like i would come back home after this like really emotionally and physically intense day at you know um at my school and like to my mom watching like the russian news and it's all they're talking about is the war and 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 it was this like humming it's like the humming noise of like political turmoil and pain in the background whilst you're trying to like perfect your body to move 
exactly to the ideal of this like uh, creative genius. This woman who in front of you is considered a creative genius. You know, I don't know. It's it's that's like I I feel like I'm talking about myself a lot, but it's no just, no you have so to. That's that's personal. the whole nature of the of the show, and I'm glad you're bringing that up. Yeah. And it, it's very moving to me because. When I say our times are politically fraught in the same way they were in 1977, like, probably not. But Mm. nonetheless, every single conflict in the world has become augmented and is so much more consuming because of the presence of the internet that any Mm. person who wants to do something artistic or express themselves in some unique way they're basically always like shoveled with political Mm. crap and i even remember Mm. that i delayed the um i delayed starting my show because of black lives matter in america because i said (laughs) if i announced a podcast in june of that year in the middle of Mm. the whole heat of it like yeah I would never be like forgiven. It would be it would be so like <laughs> it would be so over, you know? Yeah. And this movie totally gets it right that like history is this like constant stress behind all of it, all of us. And mm. it subtly inflicts us with violence and weight, and yet you have to push past it for your dance. <laughs> yeah, you have to push you have to be like, oh yeah, okay, um, I I need to go and do ballet now. You know, it's 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 like meanwhile there's like literal like suffering and war <laughs> going on. Like I, I think I remember I had times where I just it felt like you feel you feel sunken by it. I think it's re- I think right now is probably the hardest time to make art because everything is so present and so constant and everyone is so aware of everything and every injustice of the most slight celebrity in the world is Mm -hmm. turned into this level 15 crisis there's no getting around it at all there isn't and i think you're exactly right this is the hardest time in history to make art and uh, like i think about anne frank who Mm. she reflected a lot about this like specific question like of what is the use of my reflection um in the face of all this horror and she wrote in one passage it still makes me shiver to think of the dull distant drone that signified the approaching destruction and we are surrounded by that distant drone it never goes away but yeah you have to channel that into like a performance like Vogue in the Suspiria remake when they are literally performing a song called People in German and it is like Mm. the scary fascist like right wing regimented performance of populism as they're decked out in Japanese shibari ropes and are stomping their feet and grunting and it feels like such an evocative channeling of human emotion yeah I mean I, after watching the film, I was really intrigued by the choreography and who the choreographer was. And I found out that the choreographer had done um, a piece in the Louvre um, where they're like, I think that's what Volk was basically based off. It's called like the Les Meduses or something. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're like in white shibari, um, like shibari 
ropes and like there's three dancers dancing to this like organ and drum and nothing else and it's like it's the same kind of level of intensity and I just love that that was included in the film because it's like that piece was so like it, it watching that one like watching that final scene not the final like the performance scene of it mm-hmm. was so just like um powerful because you know how much um like suffering had already led to to uh, sorry there's like lots of noise outside um how much all that suffering led to this like amazing fascistic piece of art called people in <laughs> german and it's like and it's also just like the constant okay the soundtrack to me is the most anxiety inducing thing yeah the tom the york constant- soundtrack which is like ravaged by people and people still are so polarized by it which is confounding to me because i think it is so stressful and brilliant and evocative and terrifying yeah. i can't believe people don't like it no um like the constant piano repeating the it's it's literally like that's what it feels like being inside any dance institution the music is constantly on and it's buzzing somewhere you know and you're even if you're walking and trying to rest in like the break room or something somewhere in the back you hear a piano repeating something and like a woman (laughs) screaming at the top of her lungs you know like Susie get your legs up jump higher jump higher like that's just and it's just always there and it's like having that state of mind alongside with this like suffering (laughs) like like chaotic historical moment like I feel like the film captured that state very well the state of like like feeling the weight of like modern history you know on your own little like individual fragile feminine shoulders yes and um at the same time having to like worry about your dancing and constantly hearing a piano go <laughs> like like and being like fuck my jumps aren't aren't high enough like you know there's something awfully wrong with me you know like it's 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 that's what that like movie to me, that's what I, why I think it's so accurate. Because yeah. it's no other dance film portrays that. Well, you I, know? You know, when I was saying that this is a movie that gets at the nature and notion of memory so well, I was like specifically thinking about the fact that this coven of witches who runs the dance school, they're all mm. like preeminently aged and are yeah. given life beyond their means and despite the fact that they haven't died and are blessed with a longer lasting life, they all have this wary, sullen look about them because they are so hefty and over encumbered with memories of the not so distant past and Frank had Mm. only died 22 years prior to this movie and so when they do these dance sequences evoke people or even better when Susie Banyan is performing her dance and is conducting the body of a woman in another room when her body is tensing and she's flexing and her arms and legs are being ripped into unnatural figurations so intense that she ends up pissing everywhere all over the floor 
this feels like a climactic moment of Europe's cultural canon detonating at once. Exactly. That scene is so... It's Anne Frank like, getting her period. It's Anne Frank. Yo, oh my god! It literally is. It's Anne Frank getting her period. It is like... I remember... Like, that scene was just so intense. Like, and Olga as a character to me, like, she really stood out even though, like, her presence in the film was so short-lived. Like, the part where she runs out and calls them witches in Russian. She goes, Vedme! You know, it's so, like... Um, and then she gets utterly destroyed. It's, like... It's... I don't know. It's... It, it touched something, like in the core of my, my heart. Yeah, me too. Because what it is, <laughs> is, it's like literally a coven of women who are mm. so heavy with history that they use another girl to like invoke the most like female sensations in her. She's doing these like vaginal, like Pollyan poses when they like rip her bar- body apart. The fact that she mm. is squirting urine all over the floor as her face contorts and you realize mm. like this is like a compilation of historical memories and traumas of like what Europe has like gone through torturing this woman until the coven mm. picks her up with fucking oh. hooks and carries this battered young woman away into the arms of history where she is then severed of the limbs and left like drooling and screaming in a room. Just, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. The and Olga this is, death scene. This is exactly what happened to Anne Frank because like this yeah. is like a... 14-year-old girl experiencing her human body, her Eve-cursed human flesh for the first time, and because of her artistic ability, like Olga's ability to dance, she is now belabored with carrying the weight of a truly disturbing history in the flesh of her pussy for the rest of her life. And it is nightmarish, and it's real. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's like, it's the thing that, like, I was telling you earlier about, like, the body being this kind of disgusting, empty vessel. But the moment you start dedicating it to some form of art, it becomes full of meaning. But that very, like, meaning is that historical weight, that historical trauma is capable of utterly destroying you, like, psychologically and physically. And it's like, I think that that scene encapsulates that feeling so well like so on like a subconscious level Mm. like it's it's just it's amazing and just like the whole storyline of like their like piss being monitored like where they have to like submit (laughs) like excrement to the you know coven of witches is also just like it's amazing how much that film touches on the body and the like the kind of biological reality of the body and like how that is you know a carrier of like life's reality and trauma and pain really i that's what i found really 
fascinating. I fascinating. feel the same way. And it, it's so like, thoroughly realized. Um, like, the beginning of the movie when we see, like, the old woman dying and um, it's eventually, like, revealed that Susie is this primordial witch um, who may or may not have um, had a role in her uh, grand matron's death. The corporeal mm. size of this woman death rattling in Ohio before the movie even <laughs> starts. It's like you really feel like every physical form in this movie is just belabored with the weight of history. Yeah. It's oh, and the part when the last part when the mother is like in her dying breath saying, My daughter, my greatest sin is like <laughs> that to me really encapsulated that it's like the like she through the like bodily connection with her daughter knows that she created this like in a sense Susie is this monster because she's able to prevail despite all of the pain and trauma that happens you know she's she just be, you know she becomes she embodies the cruelty that um that coven of witches sort of commits and that's the only way that she's able to survive, you know, and not get killed. And, like, the scene where the mother is, you know, saying that, like, my daughter, my greatest sin, like, I found that so, um, that was so such a perfect description of Susie, mm-hmm. I think. Because, like... The thing that I didn't like about the... Sorry to come back to the Argento one. Was the innocence of Susie. I felt that this like innocence and the girlishness was a bit... Um, didn't give enough um, to the overall storyline. Which is to be expected. But like I loved that Susie herself in the, in the Guaranino didn't make Susie into this innocent little little girl although she portrays herself as that in the beginning oh i'm from ohio i'm from this really christian um like are they like uh what are they like uh mennonite mennonites yeah they're men- she's from this like mennonite community and stuff but she turns out to be this cruel creature like i like i i, I can't help but think that like the most evil person in that whole film is actually Susie. Well, it's funny because she's the most evil, but she's also the most just. Um, and I yeah. think I think it's like her sense of morality that's what makes her so evil. And I, I completely agree yeah. with you that I think it's a brilliant uh, take on the original material that the perfectly moral, innocent, virginal Susie, this emblem mm. of femininity, is in fact the most bloody and the most corporeal and the most sinister because she's been hiding her identity as Mater Suspiriorum, the the true mother of this cult of witches the entire time. Mm. And I think it's such a stroke of genius, too, that um, in the one character in this movie who is actually completely morally pure, um, that's uh, Anke, who is uh, mm. Tilda Swinton as the German psychologist, <laughs> a male character, oh, yes. uh, Klemper, Klemperer, or something like that. His uh, mm. wife, who was lost in the Holocaust, is played by mm. Jessica Harper, who played 
Susie Banyan in the original. So her innocence is thus uh, translated to the Anne Frank victim of Holocaust cruelty and exists as a a phantom uh, that floats about the whole film. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's so just like... um, You said it perfectly and like the character, the, the psychologist character was such a I didn't realize it was Tilda Swinton until a week later. And I, I didn't realize either. Swinton. I had no idea. Like, Apparently what? this was like a big news story, but I missed it completely. Yeah. <laughs> like um but it was kind of like I was very perplexed at first. I didn't get why they had him there until the middle of the film where the storyline with the wife is revealed. Um and then until the part where he's deceived um, in thinking that he's uh, reunited with his wife and then brought to the ritual scene and he's lying naked there um, screaming that there are so many guilty men in Berlin. I am not one of them, you know, but these witches, they have this desire to punish because it's like... I don't know, they have the they carry the weight and the trauma and the pain of history upon them and they feel that they were away I feel like they're able to cast that away they think that they're able to cast that away through the sacrifice of this actually purely innocent man, you know, who mm-hmm. himself is plagued by the trauma of losing his wife. Um, due to the Holocaust, it's it's just it's this constant like mindfuck of pain. Um, but yeah, the the lines I remember the lines. There are so many innocent men in Berlin. Like that broke me. Like the part where he's so weak and old and frail, laying down in front of this really powerful um, real scene. It's um, it's really intense. <laughs> the ritual scene was also extremely evocative for me on my revisit. Um, yeah. Maybe because of budget or because of something or other, but regardless of the intention, the camera effect where it's like one frame per second and it has this ghosting effect and it's mm. all of these women rubbing their tits and th- thrashing about um, and it's it's truly disturbing. Um, their choreography yeah. is like perfectly envisioned at first, and then uh, it becomes darker and uh, less visible. And this is when we're finally told that Dakota Johnson as Susie Banyan is in fact uh, Mater Suspiriorum herself. Yeah. And uh, she decides to grant death as a freedom to these abused dancers who whose flesh is so cursed with memories of the holocaust and all of the trauma inflicted upon them and uh it's very meaningful and intense that um their liberation is just death just the image of dakota johnson walking opening her chest opening her chest and walking up to the each dancer who's like dancing in this like amazing choreography that I felt like the choreography in the ritual scene was very much inspired by Pina Bausch's Rite of Spring mm-hmm. um, in the same way because it's it's uh, 
it's this really powerful, almost ritualistic dance piece that's done on like dirt. And people say that when they go watch it, like the stage is covered in dirt as they're dancing. And people say when they go watch it, they can smell the dirt in the theater, which is like, I think a really beautiful image of walking into this like amazing uh, dance theater and like- And you're confronted with nature. Soil. Yeah. (laughs) But um, just the image of Dakota Johnson as Susie walking up to the dancers and going, um uh what what do you oh, want God. and they're like <laughs> death to die they go to die and she just like it allows and they fall and then like their like heads explode and it's this like blood everywhere it was like it felt boshian like that last mm-hmm. part like it feels nothing more but boshian it's just so sublime i i have no other words for it but it's extremely sublime and it's like it's it's true because yeah we are never going to live in a world that the holocaust did not happen in we're never going to live in a world that is freed and liberated from the knowledge that our own species could conduct such a heinous visible evil act and we're going mm. to be stained with it forever. And of course, mm. it feels like the only way to escape it and to possibly cope with the truth of our own beings is to ask for death. And I, I'm really convinced that this movie is about the Holocaust because of the well, the, the thread with Tilda Swinton as the male character. Like, it really feels that way to me. And so, like, mm. it makes sense that they're asking to be extinguished because they can't handle the physical weight of having to express all of that pain in their dancing, gesticulating bodies. Yeah, and it's kind of, like, uh, you you put it so perfectly. It's It's... I feel like the film is about the Holocaust um, so so perfectly. No, I'm sorry. I feel like the film so perfectly captures that because that was, I feel like, Guadagnino's intention to begin with. I remember hearing something about him saying that he wanted to create, portray a new kind of fascism. Mm-hmm. Um and it's interesting because the the fascism that he portrays in a in a sense is so deeply feminine, and it's like the image of these like frail um, female bodies who no longer want to carry the weight of all this pain and history, just pleading to die, um, just so perfectly encapsulates that I feel like that intention, the creation of a new kind of fascism. And at the same time, like to me, I can't help but feel that this film is so greatly about um, just art and the creation of art and the commitment to art in general. Yeah, because those two things have become inexorable, haven't they? Like, to truly, this is why I'm talking about, you know, the Holocaust from my artistic podcast journey is like, because this is so baked into my DNA, literally, mm-hmm. and it is such a fundamental part of culture that you can't divide the process of creating art and expressing yourself from this terrifying 80-year-old memory that is resounding around the corners of our soul. Exactly. And I feel like... Um, uh, I don't even know how to say it. Like, it's 
I feel like in that there comes a time in an any artist's life where you have to kind of recognize that you've reached all you can do and the weight of all of that now simply resides within you and I think for dancers especially within their bodies um and that all you can wish for is to die is to be released from it it's you know, if we can, I think if we can gain anything from art is the fact that from the practice of making art is that it's our way of making sense of all of that pain transcended to us, pain and weight transcended to us, like genetically. Um, And that once we reach the closest we can to perfection, it's, we have nothing left to do, really. Yeah, we basically right. put it- ourselves in it. And I think as dancers as well, like, I mean, I was raised by dancers and gymnasts and basically, like, the aging dancer is a very interesting creature because I think they realise that they've reached their peak, they've reached their state of perfection, and now their body just carries all of the pain and injury of reaching that peak, you know? Which is why all the have... witches in this movie all seem so pathetic and disgusting. And um, yes! Tilda Swinton in her second role as Helena Marcos is like this morbid, bloated, wheelchair-bound, fleshy creature. Like, exactly, you, you have to aspire with like your youth and brilliance to make something perfect and truthful and full of statement and intent while you can because eventually Mm. you're never going to make something better than you can and so like Anne Frank sitting alone in that fucking annex voyaging into her diary you have to give every single moment of your life to expressing yourself and like realizing yourself perfectly or else you're going to crumple up and become a bloated fat Mm. obese disgusting monster that is merely a warped (laughs) mishandled creation of the historical memory of the holocaust for real like yeah (laughs) and it's like i couldn't help but think of um, abby lee miller Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, it's, why didn't they cast like, her as Helena Marcos? <laughs> she is Helena Marcos, but Helena, that Helena Marcos once again exists in every dance institution. This like old, aging sack of flesh that once was this beautiful, graceful creature, and just like leeches off of these like girls that she herself has selected you know it's like in a sense um dance itself um in an institutionalized uh context is eugenics you know you Mm -hmm. audition you get selected for your body type you get um cut through various series of exams and things like that training dancers is just I, i i sometimes feel is just an uh like deep <laughs> artistic eugenics program that like leaves most people absolutely broken and i think that um like that character of helena marcos as captured in that film is so such a perfect betrayal of the very system that it carries out um mm-hmm. 
And I think a lot of people um, pro- who probably know me through dance would get really upset at me for saying that, but um, I can't help but it be true. Like, I remember when I started doing dance full time. And said the same I thing. Was like, I can't help but being true. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't help but feel true. Yeah, I, I can't help but be honest about it. When I started dancing, it was like, like full time. I'm like, these people are body fascists. Like, they are so, um, <laughs> like, particular about what they want from you and what they are trying to sculpt from you. You know, it's a very dissociative space to be in. Mm. And um, you have to commit a lot of cruelty to ascend up into being in the position where you're able to call the shots as to who's good enough to get in and who's good enough to continue dancing and who's good enough to be a successful dance. You know, like, you have to step on a lot of feet. And I think in a sense, but I think that's really well captured in, well, in that film. Like, Nazism exists in all of us. Like, the yeah. idea to eliminate the inferior and... I mean, half of my show thus far has been about promoting your own personal superiority in the name of expressing yourself and crushing those who get in your way. And Mm. that is a form of contemporary, like, Nazism. And it's really challenging to make a a comprehensive statement about this, because I still do believe that to be true. But, Mm. like, where what parameters do you draw to keep yourself from becoming a crushing Nazi that obliterates those you deem inferior by a certain set of qualities in order to promote yourself? Like, uh, I guess you should probably like not do that to like anyone of a different like race than you, but like (laughs) in like general, like we all have that weight of fascism and Nazi, you know, ideology inside of us. And that's why I think in this movie, um, in the final epilogue titled A Sliced Up Pear. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> Tilda Swinton <laughs> as uh, Dr. Joseph Klemper uh, is liberated mm. of his memories yeah. of the Holocaust because Susie Banyan, Mater Suspiriorum, goes to his bed and deletes the memories of his dead Holocaust victim wife. And that is the ultimate sweetness uh, he receives that he no longer has to carry that trauma with him anymore. And he Mm. no longer has to live with the historical bonds that have chained him so to reality. Mm. Yeah, it's... Oh, sorry. It's... Like, that scene was so... um, I can't help but say powerful because it's... Like... He's he as a character is so plagued by that pain and trauma and loss, and to have it just erased like that, I couldn't help but feel like it makes you like help but feel that you know now he's lost something again. I you agree. Know, although he's reached sweetness and he's reached sort of kind of a release from this pain, at the same time. This pain was the main driver of him for meaning in the quest for, yeah, it was this, like, this pain gave him much more meaning than 
um, anything else in his life could have. Because which I, think, is, I think you were right about this when you said earlier that Susie Banyan as Mater Suspiriorum, as played by Dakota Johnson, is truly the most sinister figure in the whole mm. screenplay. Because, of course, it seems that we have to, like, cut these bonds of Holocaust from us so that we can try to live more free. But the truth is actually to, like, live more like Anne Frank and to recognize the bondage that you're placed in and then acknowledge it and then look up towards the blue sky and find ecstasy. Like you have to live in this shadow of horror and then look upwards and to delete the memory of trauma and to delete the memory of, you know, Jessica Harper, this pure, innocent, angelic figure here. Like that is actually the greatest act of cruelty in the whole film. Exactly. Yeah, no. What do, you, what do you think about the ending of the movie at the at the end of the credits when we see Susie Banyan once more, like doing the same gesture as she's looking at the screen and making the memory erasure hand gesture? What did you make of this? Oh. I think at that point I was in no state to make anything of it. Uh-huh. And like when I rewatched it again, it was the same. Like I, I felt like Olga. <laughs> Completely, like, in, in broken. <laughs> pissing. Um, like, pissing, yeah, crying. Um, like, completely contorted. Like, and I think, like, having her, having Susie Banyan, like, look right at you and do that hand gesture is, um, like, while you're in that state from the movie... <laughs> just feels it feels mocking i felt mocked by it that's how i did too i felt mocked by it i was like i I was fucking pissed off the first time i saw it i was like fuck you stupid bitch (laughs) like i think it kind of affirms the artifice of the filmic product because she's attempting to erase this movie that you've endured but because Mm she can't do it because you've seen the movie it kind of registers um art's place in this grand historical lineage as something that can inspire thought but can make no action itself oh yeah wow i mean i hope that's what it says but who knows (laughs) who knows but yeah i feel like the casting of dakota johnson in that role is really good oh it's so good she's i didn't i kept I kept trying to figure out, like, I didn't recognize her with orange hair. And I was like, is, who is that? You know? And, and I, when I realized it was Dakota Johnson, I thought it was so perfect. that Because she, she has this effect on me, like, to begin with, where I'm like, she, she betrays an innocence, but there's something about her that I just can't shake. And it feels... Well, she's um, off-putting. Like, that classic she's video yeah. of her and Ellen where she just, like completely destroys the artifice <laughs> of Ellen's entire like televised output. She does the Such same thing when she's fucking way. doing the deleting hand signal at you and like it's so or intense. Like, in that um what was that yeah that was her in that video with Vogue where she's like comes up to the set dressing lemons and it's like I just love lemons and um they're my favorite thing. I just put them into everything. And then, like, later she reveals that I, I don't actually 
like I'm allergic to lemons. I was just set dressing. I just thought it was funny that they even put it there. Like she completely in that destroyed that whole like the whole all of like Vogue's um <laughs> attempt to sort of be a personable um entity like in that exact in those words she just completely <laughs> mocked it and I think that like her ability to like yeah the way she portrayed Susie Banyan was so perfect and uh, I remember I was watching in the lead up to this I was watching like clips of her talking about her role as Susie and how she wanted to do all the dancing um for her role but there were just parts of it that she physically couldn't do but I just found that act in, to begin with is so admirable because um yeah the dancing that Jessica Harper does in in the original one is really funny to watch and you can see uh Johnson's like commitment to the to her role as a dancer like very well portrayed I was very I was very skeptical of Dakota Dakota Johnson as a dancer to begin with but she really she did a good job I, I think she was so well cast and that whole film is incredibly cast oh it's, I think so too we have like Mia Goth in it like pre-Pearl and everything as well and yeah. have have you seen Pearl no or... <laughs> I haven't seen either no, of those movies it. yet I haven't seen it I haven't seen it it's I don't know I don't know if it's worth watching even I think but... it probably I like Ty West enough but who knows but Masha, together we have looked into the face of the Holocaust, um, and through that lens, I feel like we have seen previously untold layers of femininity. I'm so grateful for <laughs> your perspective on all of this, and, oh. um, you know, I think to close it out, all I want to yeah. do is read the last page of Anne Frank's Diary. Yeah. She writes, A voice within me is sobbing. You see, that's what's become of you. You're surrounded by negative opinions, dismayed looks and mocking faces. People who dislike you. And all because you don't listen to the advice of your own better half. Believe me, I'd like to listen. But it doesn't work, because if I'm quiet and serious... Everyone thinks I'm putting on a new act, and I have to save myself with a joke. And then I'm not talking about my own family, who assume I must be sick, stuff me with aspirins and sedatives, feel my neck and forehead to see if I have a temperature, ask about my bowel movements and berate me for being in a bad mood, until I just can't keep it up anymore. Because when everybody starts hovering over me, I get cross, then sad and finally end up turning my head inside out, the bad part on the outside and the good part on the inside, and keep trying to find a way to become what I'd like to be and what I could be if... if only there were no other people in the world. Yours, Anne M. (laughs) 